0: story twelve of the grim smile of the five towns by arnold bennett this LibriVox recording is in the public domain story twelve the death of simon fuge part one one it was in the train that i learnt of his death although a very greedy eater of literature i can only enjoy reading when i have little time for reading give me three hours of absolute leisure with nothing to do but read and i instantly become almost incapable of the act so it is always on railway journeys and so it was that evening i was in the middle of wordsworth excursion i positively gloated over it wondering why i should have allowed a mere rumour that it was dull to prevent me from consuming it earlier in my life but do you suppose i could continue with wordsworth in the train i could not i stared out of the windows i calculated the speed of the train by my watch i thought of my future and my past i drew forth my hopes examined them polished them and put them back again i forgave myself for my sins and i dreamed of the exciting conquest of a beautiful and brilliant woman that i should one day achieve in short i did everything that men habitually do under such circumstances the gazette was lying folded on the seat beside me one of the two london evening papers that a man of taste may peruse without humiliating himself how appetising a morsel this sheet new and smooth from the press this sheet written by an ironic understanding small band of men for just a few thousand persons like me ruthlessly scornful of the big circulations and the idols of the people. If the Gazette and its sole rival cease to appear, I do believe that my existence and many similar existences would wear a different color. Could one dine alone in German Street or Panton Street without this fine piquant evening commentary on the gross newspapers of the morning? Now you perceive what sort of a man I am, and you guess rightly that my age is between thirty and forty but the train had stopped at rugby and started again and more than half of my journey was accomplished ere at length i picked up the gazette and opened it with the false calm of a drunkard who has sworn that he will not wet his lips before a certain hour for well knowing from experience that i should suffer acute ennui in the train i had when buying the gazette at euston taken oath that i would not even glance at it until after rugby it is always the final hour of these railway journeys that is the nethermost hell the second thing that i saw in the gazette The first was, of course, the Entremets column of wit, humour, and parody, very uneven in its excellence, was The Death of Simon Fuge. There was nearly a column about it, signed with initials, and the subheading of the article ran, Sudden Death of a Great Painter. That was characteristic of the Gazette, That Simon Fuge was indeed a great painter is now admitted by most dilettantes, though denied by a few. But to the great public he was not one of the few great names. To the great public he was just a medium name. Ten to one that in speaking of him to a plain person you would feel compelled to add, The painter, you know. And the plain person would respond, "Uh, Oh, yes falsely pretending that he was perfectly familiar with the name simon fuge had many friends on the press and it was solely owing to the loyalty of these friends in the matter of obituary notices that the great public heard more of simon fuge in the week after his death than it had heard of him during the thirty-five years of his life It may be asked why, if he had so many and such loyal friends on the press, these friends did not take measures to establish his reputation before he died. The answer is that editors will not allow journalists to praise a living artist much in excess of the esteem in which the public holds him. They are timid. But when a misunderstood artist is dead, the editors will put no limit on laudation i am not on the press but it happens that i know the world of all the obituary notices of simon fuge the gazette's was the first somehow the gazette had obtained exclusive news of the little event and someone high up on the Gazette staff had a very exalted notion indeed of fuge and must have known him personally fuge received his deserts as a painter in that column of print he was compared to Serroya e battista for vitality the morbidezza of his flesh tints was stated to be unrivalled even by i forget the name painting is not my specialty the writer blandly inquired why example of fuge's work were to be seen in the luxembourg at vienna at florence at dresden and not, for instance, at the Tate Gallery or in the Chantrey Collection. The writer also inquired, with equal blandness, why a painter who had been on the hanging committee of the Société Nationale des Arts in Paris should not have been found worthy to be even an ARA in London. In brief, Old England caught it, as occurred somewhere or other most nights in the columns of the gazette fuge also received his deserts as a man and the gazette did not conceal that he had not been a man after the heart of the british public he had been too romantically and intensely alive for that the writer gave a little pen-portrait of him it was very good recalling his tricks of manner his unforgettable eyes and his amazing skill in talking about himself and really interesting everybody in himself there was a special reference to one of fuge's most dramatic recitals a narration of a night spent in a boat on ham lake with two beautiful girls sisters natives of the five towns where fuge was born said the obituarist, those two wonderful creatures who played so large a part in simon fuge's life this death was a shock to me it took away my ennui for the rest of the journey i too had known simon fuge that is to say i had met him once at his soiree and on that single occasion as luck had it he had favoured the company with the very narration to which the gazette contributor referred i remembered well the burning brilliance of his blue-black eyes his touching assurance that all of us were necessarily interested in his adventures and the extremely graphic and convincing way in which he reconstituted for us the nocturnal scene on han lake the two sisters the boat the rustle of trees the lights on shore and his own difficulty in managing the oars one of which he lost for half an hour and found it again it was by such details as that about the oar that with a tint of humour he added realism to the romantic quality of his tales he seemed to have no reticences concerning himself decidedly he allowed things to be understood Yes, his was a romantic figure, the figure of one to whom every day and every hour of the day was coloured by the violence of his passion for existence. His pictures had often an unearthly beauty, but for him they were nothing but faithful renderings of what he saw. My mind dwelt on those two beautiful sisters. Those two beautiful sisters appealed to me more than anything else in the Gazette's obituary. Surely Simon Fuge had obviously been a man whose emotional susceptibility and virile impulsiveness must have opened the door for him to multifarious amours but surely he had not made himself indispensable to both sisters simultaneously surely even he had not so far forgotten that ham lake was in the middle of a country called england and not the ornamental water in the bois de Boulion. and yet the delicious possibility of ineffable indiscretions on the part of simon Fuge monopolized my mind till the train stopped at Knipe, and i descended nevertheless i think i am a serious and fairly insular englishman it is truly astonishing how a serious person can be obsessed by trifles that to speak mildly do not merit sustained attention i wondered where ham lake was i knew merely that it lay somewhere in the environs of the five towns what put fuel on the fire of my interest in the private affairs of the dead painter was the slightly curious coincidence that on the evening of the news of his death i should be travelling to the five towns and for the first time in my life here i was a knipe which as i had gathered from bradshaw and from my acquaintance brindley was the traffic centre of the five towns Two my knowledge of industrial districts amounted to nothing born in devonshire educated at cambridge and fulfilling my destiny as curator of a certain department of antiquities at the british museum i had never been brought into contact with the vast constructive material activities of lancashire yorkshire and staffordshire i had but passed through them occasionally on my way to scotland scorning their necessary grime with the perhaps too facile disdain of the clean-faced southerner who is apt to forget that coal cannot walk up unaided out of the mine and that the basin in which he washes his beautiful purity can only be manufactured amid conditions highly repellent well my impressions of the platform of Knipe station were unfavourable there was dirt in the air i could feel it at once on my skin and the scene was shabby undignified and rude i used the word rude in all its senses what i saw was a pushing exclamatory ill-dressed determined crowd each member of which was bent on the realization of his own desires by the least ceremonious means if an item of this throng wished to get past me he made me instantly aware of his wish by abruptly changing my position in infinite space it was not possible to misconstrue his meaning so much crude force and naked will to live i had not before set eyes on in truth i felt myself to be a very brittle delicate bit of intellectual machinery in the midst of all these physical manifestations yet i am a tallish man and these potters appeared to me to be undersized and somewhat thin too but what elbows what glaring egoistic eyes what terrible decisiveness in action now then get in if you're going said a red-haired porter to me curtly i'm not going i've just got out i replied well then why don't you stand out a wee and let em get in as wants to unable to offer a coherent answer to this crushing demand i stood out of the way in the light of further knowledge i now surmised that that porter was a very friendly and sociable porter but at the moment I really believed that, taking me for the least admirable and necessary of God's creatures, he meant to convey his opinion to me for my own good. I glanced up at the lighted windows of the train, and saw the composed, careless faces of haughty persons who were going direct from London to Manchester, and to whom the five towns was nothing but a delay. I envied them, i wanted to return to the shelter of the train when it left i fancied that my last link with civilization was broken then another train puffed in and it was simply taken by assault in a fraction of time to an incomprehensible bawling of friendly sociable porters season ticket holders at finsbury park think they know how to possess themselves of a train they are deceived so this is where simon fuge came from i reflected the devil it is i reflected i tried to conceive what the invaders of the train would exclaim if confronted by one of simon fuge's pictures i could imagine only one word and that a monosyllable that would meet the case of their sentiments and his dalliance his tangential nocturnal deviations in gondolas with exquisite twin odalisques there did not seem to be much room for amorous elegance in the lives of these invaders and his death what would they say of his death upon my soul as i stood on that dirty platform in a milieu of advertisements of soap boots and appearance i began to believe that simon fuge never had lived that he was a mere illusion of his friends and his small public all that i saw around me was a violent negation of simon Fuge, that entity of rare fine exotic sensibilities that perfectly mad gourmet of sensations that exotic seer of beauty i caught sight of my acquaintance and host mr robert brindley coming towards me on the platform hitherto i had only met him in london when as chairman of the committee of management of the wedgwood institution and school of art at Bursley, he had called on me at the british museum for advice as to loan exhibits he was then dressed like a self-respecting tourist now although an architect by profession he appeared to be anxious to be mistaken for a sporting squire he wore very baggy knickerbockers and leggings and a cap this raiment was apparently the agreed uniform of the easy classes in the five towns for in the crowd i had noticed several such consciously superior figures among the artisans mr brindley like most of the people in the station had a slightly pinched and chilled air as though that morning he had by inadvertence omitted to don those garments which are not seen he also like most of the people there but not to the same extent had a somewhat suspicious and narrowly shrewd regard as who should say If any person thinks he can get the better of me by a trick, let him try, that's all. But the moment his eye encountered mine, this expression vanished from his face, and he gave me a candid smile. I hope you're well, he said gravely, squeezing my hand in a sort of vice that he carried at the end of his right arm. I reassured him. Oh, I'm all right, I said, in response to the expression of my hopes it was a relief to me to see him he took charge of me i felt as it were safe in his arms i perceived that unaided and unprotected i should never have succeeded in reaching bursley from a whistle sounded better get in he suggested and then in a tone of absolute command give me your bag i obeyed he opened the door of a first-class carriage i'm travelling second i explained oh never mind get in in his tones was a kindly exasperation i got in he followed the train moved ah breathed mr brindley blowing out much air and falling like a sack of coal into a corner seat he was a thin man aged about thirty with brown eyes and a short blonde beard conversation was at first difficult Personally, I am not a bubbling fount of gay nothings when I find myself alone with a comparative stranger. My drawbridge goes up as if by magic, my postern is closed, and I peer cautiously through the narrow slits of my turret to estimate the chances of peril. Nor was Mr. Brindley offensively affable. However, we struggled into a kind of chatter— i had come to the five towns on behalf of the british museum to inspect and appraise with a view to purchase by the nation some huge slip decorated dishes excessively curious according to photographs which had been discovered in the cellars of the conservative club at bursley having shared in the negotiations for my visit mr brindley had invited me to spend the night at his house we were able to talk about all this and when we had talked about all this we were able to talk about the singular scenery of coal-dust potsherds flame and steam through which the train wound its way it was squalid ugliness but it was squalid ugliness on a scale so vast and overpowering that it became sublime great furnaces gleamed red in the twilight, and their fires were reflected in horrible black canals. Processions of heavy vapour drifted in all directions across the sky, over what acres of mean and miserable brown architecture. The air was alive with the most extraordinary, weird, gigantic sounds. I do not think the five towns will ever be described. Dante lived too soon." As for the erratic and exquisite genius Simon Fuge, and his odalisques reclining on silken cushions on the enchanted bosom of a lake, I could no longer conjure them up, even faintly in my mind. "'I suppose you know Simon Fuge is dead?' I remarked in a pause. "'No, is he?' said Mr. Brindley, with interest. "'Is it in the paper?' He did not seem to be quite sure that it would be in the paper." here it is said i and i passed him the gazette ah he exclaimed explosively this ah was entirely different from his ah something shot across his eyes something incredibly rapid too rapid for a wink yet it could only be called a wink it was the most subtle transmission of the beyond speech that i have ever known any man accomplish and it endeared mr brindley to me but I knew not its significance. "'What do they think of Fuge down here?' I asked. "'I don't expect they think of him,' said my host. He pulled a pouch and a packet of cigarette papers from his pocket. "'Have one of mine,' I suggested, hastily producing my case. He did not even glance at its contents. "'No, thanks,' he said curtly. I named my brand.' "'My dear sir,' he said, with a return to his kindly exasperation, "'no cigarette that is not fresh made can be called a cigarette.' I stood corrected. "'You may pay as much as you like, "'but you can never buy cigarettes as good as I can make "'out of an ounce of fresh B.D.V. tobacco. "'Can you roll one?' I had to admit that I could not i who in bloomsbury was accepted as an authority on cigarettes as well as on porcelain i'll roll you one and you can try it he did so i gathered from his solemnity that cigarettes counted in the life of mr brindley he could not take cigarettes other than seriously the worst of it was that he was quite right the cigarette which he constructed for me out of his wretched b d v tobacco was adorable and i have made my own cigarettes ever since you will find bdv tobacco all over the haunts frequented by us of the museum nowadays solely owing to the expertise of mr brindley a terribly capable and positive man he knew and he knew that he knew he said nothing further as to simon fuge apparently he had forgotten the deceased do you often see the gazette i asked perhaps in the hope of attracting him back to fuge no he said the musical criticism is too rotten involuntarily i bridled it was startling and it was not agreeable to have one's favourite organ so abruptly condemned by a provincial architect in knickerbockers and a cap, in the midst of all that industrial ugliness what could the five towns know about art yet here was this fellow condemning the Gazette on artistic grounds i offered no defence because he was right again but i did not like it do you ever see the manchester guardian he questioned carrying the war into my camp no i said pity he ejaculated i've often heard that it's a very good paper i said politely it isn't a very good paper he laid me low it's the best paper in the world try it for a month it gets to euston at half-past eight and then tell me what you think i saw that i must pull myself together i had glided into the five towns in a mood of gentle wise condescension i saw that it would be as well for my own honour and safety to put on another mood as quickly as possible Otherwise, I might be left for dead on the field. Certainly, the fellow was provincial, curt, even brutal in his despisal of diplomacy. Certainly, he exaggerated the importance of cigarettes in the great secular scheme of evolution. But he was a man. He was a very tonic dose. I thought it would be safer to assume that he knew everything and that the British Museum knew very little. Yet at the British Museum he had been quite different, quite deferential, and rather timid. Still, I liked him. I liked his eyes. The train stopped at an incredible station situated in the centre of a rolling desert whose surface consisted of broken pots and cinders. I expect no one to believe this. "'Here we are,' said he blithely. "'No, give me the bag, porter.' his summons to the solitary porter was like a clap of thunder three he lived in a low blackish crimson heavy-browed house at the corner of a street along which electric cars were continually thundering there was a thin cream of mud on the pavements and about two inches of mud in the roadway rich nourishing mud like indian ink half mixed The prospect of carrying a pound or so of that unique mud into a civilized house affrighted me, but Mr. Brindley opened his door with his latch-key, and entered the abode as unconcernedly as if some fair repentant had cleansed his feet with her tresses. Don't worry too much about the dirt, he said. You're in, Bursley. The house seemed much larger inside than out a gas-jet burnt in the hall and sombre portires gave large mysterious hints of rooms i could hear in the distance the noise of frizzling over a fire and of a child crying then a tall straight well-made energetic woman appeared like a conjuring trick from behind a portire how do you do mr loring she greeted me smiling so glad to meet you my wife mr brindley explained gravely now i may as well tell you now bob said she still smiling at me bobby got a sore throat and it may be mumps the chimney's been on fire and we're going to be summoned and you owe me sixpence why do i owe you sixpence because annie's had her baby and it's a girl that's all right supper ready supper is waiting for you she laughed whenever i have anything to tell my husband i always tell him at once she said no matter who's there she pronounced once with a whole-hearted enthusiasm for its vowel sound that i have never heard equalled elsewhere and also with a very magnified w at the beginning of it even when i heard the word once pronounced in less downright parts of the world I remember how they pronounce it in the five towns, and there rises up before me a complete picture of the district, its atmosphere, its spirit. Mr. Brindley led me to a large bathroom that had a faint odor of warm linen. In addition to a lot of assorted white baby clothes, there were millions of towels in that bathroom. He turned on a tap, and the place was instantly full of steam from a jet of boiling water. Now, then, he said, you can start. As he showed no intention of leaving me, I did start. Mind you, don't scold yourself, he warned me, that water's hot. While I was washing, he prepared to wash. I suddenly felt as if I had been intimate with him and his wife for about ten years. So this is Bursley, I murmured, taking my mouth out of a towel. Bosley, we call it, he said. Do you know the limerick? There was a young woman of Bosley. No he intoned the local limerick it was excellently good not meat for a mixed company but a genuine delight to the true amateur one good limerick deserves another it happened that i knew a number of the unprinted rossetti limericks precious things not at all easy to get at i detailed them to mr bindley and i do not exaggerate when i say that i impressed him i recovered all the ground i had lost upon cigarettes and newspapers he appreciated those limericks with a juster taste than i should have expected so afterwards did his friends my belief is that i am to this day known and revered in bursley not as loring the porcelain expert from the british museum but as the man who first as it were brought the good news of the rossetti limericks from ghent to a now bob an amicable voice shrieked femininely up from the ground floor am i to send the soup to the bathroom or are you coming down a limerick will make a man forget even his dinner mr brindley performed once more with his eyes that something that was not a wink but a wink unutterably refined and spiritualized this time i comprehended its import its import was to the effect that women are women we descended mr brindley still in his knickerbockers this way he said drawing aside a portiere. mrs brindley as we entered the room was trotting a male infant round and round a table charged with everything digestible and indigestible she handed the child who was in his night-dress to a maid say good-night to father good-night father the interesting creature piped bye-bye sonny said the father stooping to tickle i suppose he added when a maid and infant had gone if one's going to have mumps they may as well all have it together oh of course the mother agreed cheerfully i shall stick them all into a room how many children have you i inquired with polite curiosity three she said that's the eldest that you've seen what chiefly struck me about mrs brindley was her serene air of capableness of having a self-confidence which experience had richly justified i could see that she must be an extremely sensible mother and yet she had quite another aspect too how shall i explain it as though she had only had children in her spare time we sat down the room was lighted by four candles on the table i'm rather short-sighted and so i did not immediately notice that there were low bookcases all around the walls why the presence of these bookcases should have caused me a certain astonishment i do not know but it did "'I thought of Knipe Station, and the scenery, "'and then the other little station, "'and the desert of pots and cinders, "'and the mud in the road, and on the pavement, "'and in the hall, and the baby linen in the bathroom, "'and three children, all down with mumps, "'and Mr. Brindley's cap, and knickerbockers, and cigarettes. "'And somehow the books— "'I soon saw that there were at least a thousand of them, "'and not circulating library books either, but books— well they administered a little shock to me to mr brindley's right hand was a bottle of bass and a corkscrew beer he exclaimed with solemn ecstasy with an ecstasy gross and luscious and drawing the cork he poured out a glass with fine skill in the management of froth and pushed it towards me "Uh, no thanks i said no beer he murmured with benevolent puzzled disdain whiskey no thanks i said water i know what mr loring would like said mrs brindley jumping up i know what mr loring would like she opened a cupboard and came back to the table with a bottle which she planted in front of me wouldn't you mr loring it was a bottle of mercurie a wine which has given me many dreadful dawns but which i have never known how to refuse i should i admitted but it's very bad for me nonsense said she she looked at her husband in triumph beer repeated mr brindley with undiminished ecstasy and drank about two-thirds of a glass at one try then he wiped the froth from his moustache ah he breathed low and soft beer they called the meal supper the term is inadequate no term that i can think of would be adequate of its kind the thing was perfect Mrs. Brindley knew that it was perfect. Mr. Brindley also knew that it was perfect. There were prawns in aspic. I don't know why I should single out that dish, except that it seemed strange to me to have crossed the desert of pots and cinders in order to encounter prawns in aspic. Mr. Brindley ate more cold roast beef than I had ever seen any man eat before, and more pickled walnuts. It is true that the cold roast beef transcended all the cold roast beef of my experience. Mrs. Brindley regaled herself largely on trifle, which Mr. Brindley would not approach, preferring a most glorious Stilton cheese. I lost touch, uh, temporarily, with the intellectual life. It was Mr. Brindley who recalled me to it. "'Jane,' he said. This was at the beef and pickle stage. No answer. "'Jane?' Mrs. Brindley turned to me. "'My name is not Jane,' she said, laughing, and making a mouet simultaneously. He only calls me that to annoy me. I told him I wouldn't answer to it, and I won't. He thinks I shall give in because we've got company. But I won't treat you as company, Mr. Loring, and I shall expect you to take my side. What dreadful weather we're having, aren't we?' "'Oh, dreadful!' I joined in the game. "'Jane!' did you have a comfortable journey down Oh yes thank you well then mary mr brindley yielded thank you very much mr loring for your kind assistance said his wife yes dearest mr brindley glanced at me over his second glass of beer if those confounded kids are going to have mumps he addressed his words apparently into the interior of the glass it probably means the doctor and the doctor means money and i shan't be able to afford the ortulus animo i opened my ears my husband goes stark staring mad sometimes said mrs brindley to me it lasts for a week or so and pretty nearly lands us in the workhouse this time it's the orderless Animo. Do you know what it is? I don't. No, I said, and the prestige of the British Museum trembled. Then I had a vague recollection. There's an illuminated manuscript of that name in the Imperial Library of Vienna, isn't there? You've got it in one, said Mr. Brindley. Wife, pass those walnuts. You aren't by any chance buying it, I laughed. no he said A johnny at utrecht is issuing a facsimile of it with all the hundred odd miniatures in colour it will be the finest thing in reproduction ever done only seventy-five copies for england how much i asked well said he with a preliminary look at his wife thirty-three pounds thirty-three pounds she screamed you never told me my wife never will understand, said Mr. Brindley, that complete confidence between two human beings is impossible. I shall go out as a milliner, that's all, Mrs. Brindley returned. Remember, the Dictionary of National Biography isn't paid for yet. I'm glad I forgot that. Otherwise, I shouldn't have ordered the ortolus. You've not ordered it? Yes, I have. It'll be here tomorrow. At least, the first part will mrs brindley affected to fall back dying in her chair quite mad she complained to me quite mad it's a hopeless case but obviously she was very proud of the incurable lunatic but you're a book collector i exclaimed so struck by these feats of extravagance in a modest house that i did not conceal my amazement did you think i collected postage stamps the husband retorted no i'm not a book collector but our doctor is he has a few books if you like still i wouldn't swap him he's much too fond of fashionable novels you know you're always up his place said the wife and i wonder what i should do if it wasn't for the doctor's novels the doctor was evidently a favourite of hers i'm not always up at his place the husband contradicted you know perfectly well i never go there before midnight and he knows perfectly well that i only go because he has the best whisky in the town by the way i wonder whether he knows that simon fuge is dead he's got one of his etchings i'll go up who's simon fuge asked mrs brindley don't you remember old fuge that kept the bluebell at calden what simple simon yes well his son Oh, I remember. He ran away from home once, didn't he? And his mother had a port wine stain on her left cheek. Oh, of course. I remember him perfectly. He came down to the five towns some years ago for his aunt's funeral. So he's dead. Who told you? Mr. Loring. Did you know him? She glanced at me. I scarcely knew him, said I. I saw it in the paper. What? The signal? The signals, the local rag, Mr. Brindley interpolated. No, it's in the Gazette. The Birmingham Gazette? No, bright creature, the Gazette, said Mr. Brindley. Oh, she seemed puzzled. Didn't you know he was a painter? The husband condescendingly catechized. I knew he used to teach at the Ambridge School of Art, said Mrs. Brindley stoutly. Mother wouldn't let me go there because of that. Then he got the sack poor defenseless thing how old were you seventeen i expect i'm much obliged to your mother where did he die mrs brindley demanded at san remo i answered seems queer him dying at san remo in september doesn't it why well san remo is a winter place no one ever goes there before december oh is it the lady murmured negligently then that would be just like simon fuge i was never afraid of him she added in a defiant tone and with a delicious inconsequence that choked her husband in the midst of a draught of beer you can laugh she said sturdily at that moment there was heard a series of loud explosive sounds in the street they continued for a few seconds apparently just outside the dining-room window then they stopped and the noise of the bumping electric cars resumed its sway over the ear that's oliver said mr brindley looking at his watch he must have come from manchester in an hour and a half he's a terror glass quick mrs brindley exclaimed she sprang to the sideboard and seized a tumbler which mr brindley filled from a second bottle of bass when the door of the room opened she was standing close to it laughing with a full frothing glass in her hand a tall thin man rather younger than mr brindley and his wife entered he wore a long dust-coat and leggings and he carried a motorist's cap in a great hand no one spoke but little puffs of laughter escaped all mrs brindley's efforts to imprison her mirth then the visitor took the glass with a magnificent broad smile and said in a rich and heavy midland voice there's to husband and drained the nectar feel better now don't you mrs brindley inquired ah uh, mrs bob do was the reply how do bob how do responded my host laconically and then with gravity mr loring uh, mr oliver Cockloch, thinks he knows something about music glad to meet you sir said mr cocklor shaking hands with me he had a most attractively candid smile but he was so long and lanky that he seemed to pervade the room like an omnipresence "'Sit down and have a bit of cheese, Oliver,' said Mrs. Brindley, as she herself sat down. "'No, thanks, Missus Bob. I must be getting towards home.' He leaned on her chair. "'Trifle, then?' "'No, thanks.' "'Machine a-going all right?' "'Like oil, never stopped the engine once.' "'Did you get the Symphonia Domestica all, Mr. Brindley inquired. "'Didn't I say as I should get it, Bob?' "'You said you would.' "'Well, I've got it.' "'In Manchester?' "'Of course.' mr brindley's face shone with desire and mr oliver koklo's face shone with triumph where is it in all my hall i we'll play it all no really bob i can't stop now i promised the wife we'll play it all you'd no business to make promises besides suppose you'd had a puncture i expect you've heard strauss's symphonia domestica mr loring up in the village Mr. Cocklo addressed me. He had surrendered to the stronger will. In London, I said? No, but I've heard of it. Bob and I heard it in Manchester last week, and we thought it'd be a bit of a lark to buy the arrangement for Pianofort to do it. Come and listen to it, said Mr. Brindley. That is, if nobody wants any more beer. End of part one.